0: Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver. This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s this guy raced for such a short time but had such a large impact and it was super cool to talk about a quebecois racing legend that's Pass gas by dona media available anywhere you get your podcasts subscribe today number one automotive podcast Pass gas The year is 2011. The event, Super Bowl 45. The Pittsburgh Steelers versus the Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers was MVP. Christina Aguilera sang the national anthem. The Black Eyed Peas performed the halftime show in truly Fergalicious fashion. It was peak 2010s in every way, but arguably the biggest moment of the event was an epic two minute commercial titled Born of Fire, better known by its catchphrase, Imported from Detroit. As Marshall m M&M m Mathers drives a Chrysler 200 through darkly lit Detroit streets, and an instrumental version of his song Lose Yourself plays in the background, a gritty male voice growls.
1: What does a town that's been to hell and back know about the finer things in life? <laughs> well, I'll tell ya, more than most. You see, it's the hottest fires that make the hardest steel. Add hard work and conviction, and the know-how that runs generations deep in every last one of us. That's who we are, that's our story. Now it's probably not the one you've been reading in the papers, the one being written by folks who have never even been here, don't know what we're
0: capable of. Marshall m M&M Mathers parks his Chrysler outside Detroit's iconic Fox Theater. Inside, a black choir adds their voices to the music from the stage as Marshall walks down the aisle. On stage, the rapper turns to the camera and says,
1: This is the Motor City and this is what we do.
0: The what we do was clear. Detroit has always been the center of American car manufacturing. But how did the city get to the point of needing a Super Bowl ad to sell itself? What was the Helen back referenced in the ad? And what was the story written in the papers? If it was false, then was there a true version ready to be uncovered? Today on Pass Gas, it's definitely not the story you've been reading in the papers. Because when it comes to our podcast, It's as much about where it's from as who it's for. This is Past Gas, and this is what we do.
1: Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports.
2: Do you know Eminem's real full name? Eminem's full name is Slim Marshall Eminem Mathers Shady.
0: (laughs) Uh, I remember seeing that ad um, and thinking, damn, that's a... That's a slick looking car. All right, all right, yeah. Chrysler, I see you. And then I rewatched the ad. This we yeah. uh, rewatched it this morning, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, that's not not
2: aged well that design." Yeah, that updated Chrysler Cirrus. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was like, I was like, "Wait, is, is he what was he driving a two hundred in this commercial? Yeah. <laughs> like
2: it's a like three hundred would make sense. Three hundred would sense. totally like make sense. Kind of a luxury
1: car. Like yeah. this is a Sebring.
2: Yeah." It's
0: a Dodge Dart with leather seats.
1: I, Dodge Dart, notorious I, piece of crap.
2: I remember this specifically because this is the year that my Packers won the Super Bowl last. Uh, so was I was having time? a good time. Yeah, 2011. Isn't that crazy that Aaron Rodgers hasn't won a Super Bowl since? I thought they like, won like four in the time since then. They've been to a lot, haven't no, they? They've, they've, we've won about five. In the history of Super Bowls, four or five. No way! Yeah, uh, that but was a Aaron Rodgers has only won one. He just let the organization know that he m- doesn't want to come back. So that's a huge Ooh. blow to my heart. Well,
0: if you haven't been to the Super Bowl, or if you haven't if you haven't won a Super Bowl since 2011, ten years ago, I you know I, I feel him. I feel him. Yeah, yeah. Although he has been here, been there his whole career, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's kind of a that's.
1: I like him. I like him because he
2: wears the black shoes. He wears black cleats. Yeah, he wears black cleats and he hosted Jeopardy. He guest hosted Jeopardy.
1: So maybe, maybe he doesn't want to play, maybe he can come to Donut. Aaron Rodgers, (laughs) if you're listening, I think there's probably a 98% chance that you are.
2: Yeah, I Uh, mean, we still are like taking other submissions for hosts, but
1: we'll consider you. Let's take a general, Aaron. Let's talk about it. Me and Jesse, Matt, we'll sit down with you, see what you want to do in your future. Maybe maybe we have some stuff that'll align. You can do a green screen show.
0: Maybe Greg Jennings is interested as well. But anyway, this is not a football podcast. This is a past cast. We are an automotive history podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by uh, the other hosts of the show. I got James Pumphrey.
1: Oh, is that a free blow pop?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and Joe Weber.
2: Keep it juiced.
0: And yeah, we, we got Greg Jennings over there. Anyway. Uh, yeah, as we mentioned in the, in the intro, we are talking about the history of Detroit, a city I know nothing about. Uh, I'm not well-traveled along uh, among these lands. Have you boys ever been to Detroit? I have not. Yes. Tell me about it.
1: Uh, it looks like Gotham City. There's steam coming up out of the manholes. Love it. Uh, their food that they're known for is Coney hot dogs, chili dogs. And pizza.
2: They have a specific type of pizza, too. It's got the sauce on the top. Uh, Oh, interesting.
1: I love it. I think it's a really cool city. Detroit is a
2: good show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Uh, I uh, I
0: think Lance Reddick is on there.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Let's get into the story. Detroit. Here we go. This is a story about a comeback. But what was Detroit coming back from? And what was the city like at the height of its glory? To understand, let's start at the beginning. Detroit was founded in 1701 by French explorer Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac, who led a band of 100 settlers to build a fort on the bank of the Detroit River.
1: Yeah, he's named like the car.
0: Yeah, he was actually named after the car. Yeah, he's like, I love
2: Eldorados.
0: <laughs> Cadillac's name would live on hundreds of years later as the name of a car company, as we just joked about. But before it was Motown, Detroit was fur town, providing a <laughs> hub for fur traders to ply their wares and buy supplies. Just like you could have any color Model T as long as it was black, back in the 1700s Detroit, you could have any coat you wanted as long as it was made of fur. As, as long as it was made of fur. <laughs> Fast forward to 1903 and Detroit was now the 13th largest city in the U.S. with a population close to 300,000 people. And that was the year that one of its citizens, a man we know and kind of love, I guess, as Henry Ford, founded a car company that shared his name. Some of the same factors that made Detroit a popular destination for fur trading 200 years earlier made it a suitable candidate for the hot new automotive industry. Detroit was centrally located for distribution within the United States with well-established rail and water routes to the major destinations of Chicago and New York City. Still, a lot of historians argue that other Midwest towns shared a lot of those same strengths, and that it was actually the dumb luck of Ford and some other car guys being in Detroit that led to the area's reinvention. Who knows, maybe if Henry Ford had been born in Wisconsin, Eminem m would be doing an ad about Milwaukee muscle instead. Well,
1: Eminem m would have had to be from Milwaukee as well.
0: Dude, butterfly effect, dude. Henry Ford starts Ford in Milwaukee, Marshall Mathers, uh... Grows up on nine mile in Milwaukee. I don't know.
2: No, it's seven mile, seven mile fair. But Damn also it. It what would if be I coo- what
0: if I nailed that? What if I just went one digit down? Yeah. I would look yeah, like
1: that would have been great. Geo guesser
0: <gasps> god with
1: yeah, that Yeah, you would have looked like you knew geography.
2: No, uh, I mean it it would have been Cuckoo Cow, we all know that. Uh singer of My Projects. Remember that song? No? No. He was a uh, the pride of Milwaukee, uh <laughs> listen to my projects. <laughs> proud
0: Milwaukee, baby. <laughs> anyway, back in Detroit, although hundreds of car brands were founded throughout the United States in the early 20th century, Detroit's dominance quickly solidified, led by Ford. Back then, all car companies were essentially startups, and Detroit functioned a lot like Silicon Valley. The more the city's industry thrived, the more it continued to attract additional talent and investment. By 1915, A stunning 13 out of the 15 most popular American car companies were based in Detroit, earning it the nickname Motor City or Motown. Motown, (laughs) (laughs) baby. Motown, baby. By
1: 1920, Detroit was booming, beyond booming, in fact. While its population was 500,000 in 1910, it doubled in ten short years, reaching one million by 1920, and making Detroit the fourth biggest city in the United States, behind only New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia.
2: I've never heard of any of those cities. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's crazy, like how over time, like populations change, and yeah. like small th- those cities that were huge back then, you don't even hear
2: of them anymore. They're just ghost towns now. Yeah. I know,
1: like New York used to be thought of as like uh, Pensacola. Like, Pensacola now, Pensacola, Florida. Yeah. Biggest city in the country, right? Yeah. Yeah. Insane. It's insane. The big crab cake. (laughs) (laughs) By 1950, that number was a staggering two million. Detroit was also highly diverse with a huge population of immigrants as well as black Americans who came to the city in search of jobs. Since 60% of Detroit's jobs were in the auto industry... It meant that a big part of made in America meant made by black people and immigrants. All right. A huge system of highways was built around the city because of all the cars, and they needed places to drive, allowing for easy transportation from the rapidly growing suburbs. Electric streetcars ran throughout the city in a grid that spanned 534 miles. Although we associate Detroit with urban ruins and decay now, in the 50s, all those ruins were glorious. Art Deco theaters, shiny banquet halls, and bustling offices full of men smoking cigarettes.
2: And drinking whiskey and eating and whiskey steaks. Whiskey, eating steak for lunch. <laughs> These included
1: the Fox Theater that Marshall Eminem Mathers walked through, as well as Michigan Central Station, a 13-story monolith built in the Beau art style by the same architects who built Grand Central Station in New York. Hmm. Cars were key to Detroit's growth. They were also an important ingredient in creating America's middle class. Picture that Life Magazine-style nuclear family of the 50s. There's always a new American car in the suburban driveway. In Detroit, many white Americans were living that dream. Even those with basic education could get a job on the line and feel like they were safely within the thriving middle class. But just like any dream, it wouldn't
0: last. Arguably, the earliest sign of clear trouble for Detroit was in 1958, when the Packard Motor Company went out of business. Before World War II, Packard was like Detroit's version of Rolls Royce, making massive deluxe cars for America's elite. As president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually gave Packard limos as gifts to several world leaders. But after the war, Packard stagnated as its competitors transitioned away from building pre-war behemoths.
2: That's a flex, dude. Yeah, I wish... We were rich enough to just be able to give each other cars because that'd be tight.
0: Here is a
2: Packard limousine. Mm. (laughs) Happy uh, graduation. Here's a Packard.
0: (laughs) An additional turning point came when Packard made the disastrous decision to buy its competitor, Studebaker, which turned out to be in even worse financial shape than Packard. The combination of bad financial decisions and lack of innovation... For example, Packard failed to include air conditioning in many of their flagship cars, led to the end of the once famed company. Mike Chrysler has air conditioning. I mean, it has the bones the for air conditioning. Uh, yeah. In 1952. So if they weren't having air conditioning in the late yeah. 50s, come on, son.
2: Best we can do is give you a big block of ice and a little, <laughs> a little fan. We'll give
1: you a, Every month, you can come back and redeem a token... To get a
0: brand new block of ice to put on your seat. <laughs> oh, look at this Packard. It's a- I think I'll buy Studebaker. You know why nobody wants to be cold in the car. Everyone wants to be
2: hot, hot, hot. Here's your Studebaker all the way over here. And this is my gas pipeline. <laughs> why is
0: Daniel Day-Lewis selling me a Packard? <laughs> Packard was a warning sign for what was to come for what became known later as the Big Three of Detroit. You got Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors. But the same issues of bad design and poor management were also true on a municipal level. The city of Detroit was showing some cracks in its Beau art facade. Racial tensions were also mounting in the city, as living standards for black Detroiters lagged behind their white counterparts. Many of those white elites were moving to the suburbs and taking their money with them causing Detroit's tax base to shrink as taxpayers moved out of the city center.
1: White flight happened in L.A. too.
0: The auto companies followed the same pattern of outward migration. GM, Ford, and Chrysler spent billions of dollars in the decade after World War II building a staggering 25 new auto plants. But every single one of those factories was located not in Detroit proper, but the suburbs. While the white unemployment rate was stable at 6%, by the 1950s, 15.9% Fifteen point nine percent of Black Detroiters were unemployed. Even when Black workers could get jobs, they were often given the most dangerous and less desirable assignments, like working in the foundries.
1: What's a foundry? That's where, like they, where uh, they
0: smelt. Where they smelt metal. Yeah, mm. there's a huge foundry next to uh, California Speedway. Cool.
1: For how badly they were treated, it was black Detroiters who created a cultural moment that became an international sensation. Talking about Motown. Led by Barry Gordy, a Detroit-born record executive who founded Motown Records, acts like Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, and Marvin Gaye, amongst countless others, would sell millions of records whose sound was inspired by the electric energy and spirit of Detroit.
2: I noticed that Thomas left off Rockwell from this list of artists. Uh rockwell was barry gordy's nephew who sang uh i think there's somebody watching me with michael jackson remember that song yeah, i always I was feel like the there's somebody night. watching. Yeah. yeah that song i love that. Song. Yeah, that's rockwell me. well the rap the rap part of it is and uh, if you can oh. tell he's not that great of an artist because he does that kind of like singing rap like kanye it was midnight, uh. and we were—it's like Broadway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, he got the—he's got that Lin Manuel flow, that Lin Manuel Miranda flow. Oh man! After watching the uh, the track Explo- or song exploder episode on that uh, that Hamilton's song, which one? I forget. Uh, but I like actually gained a lot of respect for Lin Manuel Miranda. But like before, like I was trying to like convince my girlfriend loves broadway and all that and she's yeah. like he's a great rapper what's the problem and i'm like trying to explain to her with like the, i know but like i tried watching
1: I'm... hamilton when it came on hbo plus and i was just like of course white people like this this is <laughs> the worst this is so fucking offensive this is the worst <laughs> i've ever seen in my entire life <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds like we have very different
1: <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton might be the worst <laughs> I've ever seen in my life.
0: I've never
2: and watched I've it. I've a never watched it. it I was so excited to watch it finally. And I think, you know, maybe I would have liked it five years ago. But it was like really hard to watch oh, on Disney+. Oh, God. Plus. It's just
1: like a f- high school
2: talent show. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? I'm is- not giving away my chance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that's the Rock so Rockwell, we have we have to thank Rockwell for that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It it all stems back to Rockwell. Follow the Rockwell. Anyway.
1: Well, a wave of rock bands followed Motown, including Alice Cooper, Kiss, and the Stooges, as well as the MC five, who turns out were kind of racist. Yeah, Yeah, some jerks. It's hard not to connect these musical acts to cars. The same way Detroit seemed primed to be an incubator for car culture, it did the same for music. And with car culture at its peak influence in American culture, Detroit was not just a population center of the world, it was a cultural center too. But great music is often born out of hard times. And ultimately, that was true for Detroit of the late 60s too. Problems came to head in 1967 when black Detroiters rioted in what some call the Detroit Rebellion. On a hot July night, cops raided a speakeasy on the west side of the city. This sparked the biggest riot in over 100 years of American history, an event in which 43 died, 1,189 people were injured, and more than 2,000 buildings burned. If the most inspirational moment of the civil rights movement in America was MLK's I Have a Dream speech, the burning of Detroit was its moment of justified despair and anger with tragic results. It's safe to say that this was the hell that imported from Detroit ad was describing. But at this point, coming back from it seemed impossibly far off. The chaos in the streets only increased the number of white Detroiters fleeing the city core for the suburbs. And now
0: the phenomenon had a name, White Flight. We'll get back to more past guests. But right now, a word from our sponsors.
3: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, That's A-N-G-I dot com.
0: In the 70s, the social issues that had caused the riot reached the highest judicial level, the Supreme Court. The case was Milliken versus Bradley. Like Brown versus Board of Education before it, the case was about segregation, but this time within Detroit metro schools. Schools within the city of Detroit were majority black and got almost no funding, while those outside the city were majority white and got plenty of funding. The question was whether rules about desegregating schools could apply across school district lines. Unlike Brown, in this case, the courts ruled that the area's 53 school districts did not have to desegregate. White people could move to the suburbs, safe in the knowledge that the schools there would not be desegregated with kids from the inner city.
2: Do you know there are still high schools in Georgia that have like segregated proms? Yeah,
0: that's like that comes up like every other year. There's some news story about it. It's like, what
2: the hell are yeah. we
0: doing?
1: And what do I got to do? What do I got to do to go to the black prom?
2: Uh, DJ, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's what they want.
1: <laughs> you guys ever heard of Bright Eyes? You just play the Hamilton soundtrack?
2: <laughs> You're like really into it?
1: <laughs> Where are you? And I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh God. It's so the last dance, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Been a crazy year. Where are you? <laughs> Remember to leave some room for Jesus. <laughs> y'all like Dashboard Confessional? <laughs> we got five song block. <laughs> I got kicked, I got kicked out of karaoke one time for uh, singing Dashboard Confessional like five times in a row.
2: Really. <laughs>
0: Anyway, and to be clear, many of these insulated white people weren't just middle class people looking for a better life for themselves. They were executives, lawyers, and accountants for the car industry who are amongst the wealthiest people in the country. Oakland County, just outside of Detroit, was one of the wealthiest counties in the United States, with massive mansions separated by acres of lavish grounds dotted with swimming pools and horse stables.
2: And horse swimming pools. (laughs)
0: Now, you might be asking, what does this have to do with cars? Well, remember how we compared Detroit to Silicon Valley? Well, the city's success was dependent on being a magnet for car companies and the talented designers and engineers who worked for them. As Detroit went from a booming American metropolis to a troubled city with major social and economic problems, that magnet was losing its attractive powers all the way up and down the economic spectrum, from immigrants and minorities looking for jobs to highly educated executives thinking twice before relocating their families to Detroit. As Detroit became less appealing, the big three American car manufacturers would look elsewhere in the country and world for growth opportunities. Ford, Chrysler, and GM realized they could build their car plants in the South, Canada, and Mexico, all places where auto unions weren't as strong and they could keep wages lower. Automation also played a role. As technology advanced, fewer humans were needed to build a car. Ford's River Rouge plant, for example, employed a staggering 90,000 workers in 1930. But by 1960, that number was down to just 30,000 and would continue to dwindle every decade to just
2: 6,000 in
1: 1990.
2: Wow. That's insane.
0: 90,000 uh, people.
2: Yeah, I have like this fear of... Since, I, since like elementary school, I've had this fear of being like the last one. Just thinking about being one of the last people working in this plant and you know like it's being closed up is just like so sad to me yeah the robots are cutting in line in, yeah in the cafeteria and they're like <laughs> sorry sorry i need my oil first beep, 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 beep,
1: beep, beep, beep. and
2: you're like hey it just like rolls over your toe <laughs> yeah you're like hey quick cutting
1: means like would you like me to actually cut You with my laser? (laughs) Why do you? Who gave you a knife? Why are you German? Ratchet bot? Yeah, why are you German? (laughs) (laughs) By the late sixties, Motown was a city with more problems than solutions. But in the early seventies, things got worse. That's right. We're talking about the nineteen seventy three oil (laughs) crisis. The oil crisis was caused by increased tensions in the Middle East, but its consequences reverberated all the way to the Middle West, Detroit, Michigan. (laughs) According to our very own website, donutmedia.com, where you can buy a t-shirt commemorating the oil crisis, the situation was, quote, responsible for some of the most boring cars in American history. Worse than boring, these vehicles were financial flops for the American car companies that were manufacturing them. Cars coming out of Detroit in that era were gas guzzlers, poorly designed or both. And as prices skyrocketed at the pump, consumers said, Uh, eh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> we're talking about cars like the Ford Pinto, the Pontiac Phoenix, the Chevy Vega.
2: The Mustang Two. <laughs> Based on the, the- Pinto.
1: The catchphrase imported from Detroit is a clear nod to the reality that millions of Americans now choose to buy their vehicles from overseas manufacturers, and the oil crisis era is where that trend really started in earnest. The oil crisis spelled big opportunity for foreign makers whose fuel-efficient cars made way more sense at a time when gas was scarce. For example, in 1973, Honda sold 38,857 Civics in the American market. Two years later, in 1975, that number nearly tripled to 102,389. In comparison, Chevy built 2.5 million cars in 1973. By 1975, the company made 823,000 cars, less than a third of what it had been doing just two years before. Wow. Ford and Chrysler's bottom lines told similar stories. There were also many mystifying management decisions that seemed to add to the problem. Just to give one example, GM had a policy that dictated that none of its dealers could own and operate more than one GM franchise in order to avoid direct competition. For instance, if you ran a Cadillac dealership, you couldn't run a Chevy dealership as well. This led many dealers looking to expand their businesses to sign on with Japanese manufacturers, giving foreign auto sales a toehold in the american market and completely backfiring on gm yeah like let (laughs) i mean that's just like
0: totally that that's just totally unheard of today like you like
1: they sell cadillacs at the same dealership that they sell yeah
0: cadillacs gm or cadillac chevy gmc all at the same facility you know like yeah that's like a no-brainer
2: yeah you don't even need a brain to understand that's a good idea you can understand
1: that
0: with no brain yeah yeah like I said, it's I, a
2: no-brainer.
1: <laughs> oh, that's what that means. <laughs> in the 60s, Americans had a bias against Japanese cars. Many consumers assumed the cars were worse quality. But as neighbors and friends started buying Japanese cars and lo and behold, they turned out to be reliable, the script flippity-flipped as <laughs> Japanese cars became known and loved chiefly for their reliability. I pulled a in well there.
2: nice is that how you write raps yeah (laughs) script flippity
1: flipped as the oil crisis resolved americans returned to buying gas guzzlers and u.s car manufacturers partially recovered although they never regained their previous heights in terms of production numbers yeah because most american cars from the 80s suck too yeah this turned out not to be a zero-sum game Japanese manufacturers kept their numbers up, showing that Americans had developed brand loyalty to Honda and Toyota, who were clearly in America to stay. By the early 80s, Asian automakers were threatening to Mitsubishi eclipse their American counterparts. While Ford produced (laughs) 783,000 cars in 1982, Toyota sold 556,000 to eager American buyers. Catching up. Toyota also sold a bunch of cars internationally, too, so... As you all should know by now, we love everything JDM, and although the oil crisis was tough for Detroit Steel, it created a boom in Japanese cars and Japanese car culture in America, one of the coolest eras for cars of all time. Even beyond its 80s heyday, Japan continued to dominate the global car scene. I would say that maybe the heyday was the 90s, but it's all preference. In 2000, Japan became the world leader in car production. In 2008, Toyota surpassed GM to become the world's largest car manufacturer. Japan was still the world's largest car manufacturer until recent years when they've been overtaken not by the United
2: States, but by China. Whoa. Oh, because like VW has their plant there. Yeah, Uh, a few
0: big plants. Foreign automakers. China has their own car companies that we don't even really know about. Like Geely? Geely, yeah uh me. quick digression do I mean we're like so insulated from this but do like people still like refer to cars like oh yeah like he's got himself a German car he got a Japanese car that's a good Japanese car like to me it's just like oh, it's a car you know like I don't really think of it in terms of yeah. origin anymore I, th-
2: I think like since the advent of the internet like things have just kind of evened out and it's less like our tribe versus your mm-hmm. tribe like it's it's a little you can find Pockets of uh, enthusiasts for like any car company, like anywhere.
1: I think people, I think people are super loyal to like European cars. I think, oh yeah, people still think of European cars as the most luxurious because you got yeah. Audi. Um, like Lexus is an exception, but I think like,
2: but Lexus was like copying German right. So I luxury think, companies. God. I
1: think when people think of luxury, they still think of European. Yeah, I,
0: I still think German, and I yeah. think
1: you know American cars. Have a certain thing like I that's think that's true. Like, unless it's a muscle car or a Mustang or a Corvette, I think or a truck. Trucks, I for sure. Gen- like American like compacts are kind of trash. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. So I think I think there's definitely like n- I don't know if rightfully so, but like it's based in some. There is some merit to to the association. Like Japanese compact cars, 100% the best. Yeah. European luxury cars. With the exceptional Lexus, even maybe mm-hmm. including Lexus, 100% the best.
2: American trucks. Yeah. Yeah.
1: American trucks, 100% the best. Big trucks. American Certainly trucks are the best. the biggest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Detroit's decline, on the other hand, didn't really have an upside. From a peak of nearly 2 million in 1950, Detroit's population was down to 1.2 million by 1980. This led to Detroit's famed urban decay. Thousands of empty buildings and houses taking up several square miles around the city. While the city was attempting to demolish abandoned buildings, those efforts have led to bizarre areas where only one or two houses are left standing on what used to be a thriving neighborhood block. It's a haunting reminder of the Detroit that used to be. By the 80s and 90s, its citizens had realized that there was no going back. The only way forward was to forge an entirely new path.
0: I just found this photography channel. Uh, this uh, called Velandis He's this dude in Detroit. He uh, does a lot of like street photography, and it's so weird to see these kind of blocks that you just described of just like one or two houses on a block. It looks yeah. like they're out in the country somewhere, but they're in Detroit. You know, just because there's all the the houses are so spread out.
2: Yeah, there's like the that neighborhood of like old Victorian mansions that are just like all derelict and. You know, there's like one or two per block. And it's just like, damn, I want to just go exploring and derelict.
1: We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors.
0: By 2008, the big three had lost over 40% of their United States market share. Oof. The financial crisis that year was the last straw. Luckily, though, it turned out to be rock bottom. The U.S. government provided $85 billion in loans to prop the companies up as both GM and Chrysler both filed for bankruptcy protection.
2: But not Ford, though. Not Ford. Ford didn't take that money.
0: Although most of the loans were paid off a few years later, and the general consensus today is that the bailout helped turn around the American economy, the damage done to Americans' ideas of its car brands as permanent titans of industry would never be fully salvaged. As for Detroit, its saviors included countless community activists and proud Detroiters who worked to turn the city around even when it seemed like nobody else cared or wanted to help. Other figures in the city's turnaround were less likely. For example, Dan Gilbert, a guy you've probably never heard of unless you're really into consumer finance.
2: Which we are. Yeah, we are. We are. Dan Gilbert. Yeah, I know. You mean the the goat? You mean the goat of consumer finance? Yeah, the goat (laughs) of consumer finance. He's like the freaking LeBron
1: consumer finance
2: gilbert
0: <laughs> had founded mortgage lending company
2: quicken loans
0: and in 2010 he made the decision to capitalize on rock bottom prices and moved his company's headquarters to downtown detroit gilbert was born and raised in detroit and a, and attended michigan state
1: go go schoon,
2: schooner boys i think they're wolverines yep
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no that's
2: michigan that's no michigan. they're the spartans
0: aren't they yeah, yeah. Uh, hell yes, yeah! But- My days of watching college football paid off. I knew it. Go spooners, Spooner, Spooner dudes. Spooners. The Spooner dudes, Michigan anyway. State Spooner dudes. He attended Michigan State. For him, the decision was as much personal as it was business. From there, the billionaire CEO continued to invest in Detroit, buying over sixty buildings in the downtown area. Side note: He also owns the Cleveland Cavaliers.
2: Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> So sorry to you, Dan.
0: Quicken's move to Detroit was part of a wave of startup and tech companies moving to the city. In a weird reversal of the white flight of the 60s and 70s, young professionals, mostly whites, were now flocking to Detroit for the cheap rent and job opportunities.
2: Only this time, they're gentrifying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's why I was in Detroit uh, when Donut first started. We participated in this like tech, like competition. Oh, thing. weird. And like oh. Matt and uh, Ben, our two, two of our founders, like lived in Detroit for a summer. And oh, was that
0: for TechStars?
1: Yeah, it was TechStars. Okay. And like I was in Detroit for TechStars. That's cool. All of this brings us back to 2011, the year of the famed imported from Detroit Super Bowl ad starring Slim, Marshall, Eminem, Shady Mathers. <laughs> the third Thank you for saying his whole name. Yeah. The watershed moment for the city actually almost never happened for multiple reasons. For one, Chrysler was worried that the Chrysler 200, which was priced at a budget-friendly $18,000, had already received mixed reviews and wouldn't impress a wide public audience.
2: That's true. <laughs> that happened.
1: <laughs> Uh, The Chrysler 300 was their more luxurious model with options as high as $46,000. But it was built (laughs) across the Detroit River in Brampton, Ontario, making the imported from Detroit slogan a bit of a stretch. Mm. (laughs) Adding to this, the NFL had never allowed a two-minute ad. But the weirdest wrinkle was that Eminem was already set to appear in a Super Bowl ad a claymation spot for Lipton Brisk iced tea in which a claymation version of Marshall Mathers shoved a corporate exec (laughs) off the roof of a building. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, dude. (laughs) Get out of my face, Big T. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a Lipton Brisk boy. (laughs) (laughs) But Chrysler stuck with their game plan, and it paid off. Chrysler 200 was the number two search Google phrase on Google during the game, beating out Black Eyed Peas, a band that once said the R word 24 (laughs) times in one song. The ad received millions of additional views on YouTube, which, although common now, was relatively rare in 2011. Of course, there's more to turning around a city than a Super Bowl ad. There are still major struggles in the area. Detroit and its surrounding suburbs take up 139 square miles. 40 of those square miles are vacant. The city is still surrounded by massive freeways catering to traffic that's no longer there. We all experienced some version of this weird urban emptiness in the pandemic. For Detroiters, that's just normal times. Their apocalyptic moment came decades ago and really never went away.
0: Wow. Signs of hope have been more frequent lately. In 2017, a New York Times article headlined, Detroit the most exciting city in America, ran in the paper. Unlike the heyday of Detroit, when electric streetcars ran on a grid hundreds of miles long, Detroit is the biggest American city without a public transit authority. But recently, really? that's, that's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. But recently, Detroit opened the Q line, a three mile long electric streetcar that runs through a touristy area of the city. Also, Ford and General Motors are reinventing themselves as mobility companies, Mm -hmm. although calling Detroit Mobility City doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Still can be Motown, baby. Yeah. That's right. As car companies become increasingly similar to tech companies, Detroit's newfound startup culture has the potential to rub off on its legacy of car manufacturing. There's also hope that Detroit's industrial leaders have learned a lesson from the brutal decades of the 70s and 80s. Although the headlines for many years have been focused on outsourcing, Detroit still commands 25% of all new automotive investment. Instead of growing complacent and allowing other countries' offerings to overtake them, the mood in Detroit is that innovation is now part of the game. For example, Ford recently announced they'd invest nearly a billion dollars in creating a hub for the development of autonomous and electric cars at Michigan Central Station, the famous building we mentioned earlier. By the 2010s, it was famous for a different reason glamorized in a wave of ruins photography, which some people called ruins porn. The station had closed in 1988, and in the following years was ransacked and graffitied by countless urban explorers. Incredibly, Detroit responded to the news of the station's renewal by giving back. Dozens of citizens have come forward to return items that were taken from the ruins of the train station, including the massive clock that used to hang in the main hall. Apparently, the clock was left in an abandoned lot before someone called forward with instructions on where to retrieve it.
2: Hey, I got your clock down here. Uh, this is how you get in. You drive through, you're going to no experience feelings. a gate. You're going to have to pull up the little arm that holds it to the pole. And <laughs> I left
1: the key under the mat. I'm at work right now. I, I set it to 420
0: because, you know, it's funny. Uh it's probably the nicest time of the day. <laughs> 420, both hands will just be on the four.
1: Oh. Oh, dude, giving back like that, that's Detroit. and That's what we do. Okay. <laughs> we give back the stuff from that place. Then we go to Tellway Hamburgers and get us a slider.
2: Okay? Oh, nice. Good poll.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, GM has announced that production versions of the driverless Cruise AV will be built in the in the Detroit area, and the company plans to invest hundreds of millions of dollars to build next-gen Cadillac sedans at GM's plant in nearby Lansing.
1: You know, maybe I'll pick up one of those next-gen Cadillac sedans and drive to Mike's famous ham place and get a ham sandwich, huh?
0: Another great pull,
2: man. Thanks, man. Keep them coming.
0: Still, it's a little ironic that America's best-selling three vehicles are the Ford F-Series, Chevy Silverado, and Ram Pickup. They're not exactly cars you associate with the future of ride sharing and mobility. While Automaker's mistake in the seventies was a failure to offer small and efficient cars like the Honda Civic, it seems today's American consumers can't get enough of big ass American trucks.
1: <laughs> yeah, and man, I-, I love a big truck. I'd like to get a truck put down the put down the tailgate. And just eat a Coney from Lafayette, Coney Island. You know what I mean? Oh, my
2: God, dude. (laughs) Three for three. Wow. Bad in a thousand. These are just my spots. These are just my spots. These are my
1: Detroit (laughs) spots, you know? I see
2: that you're clicking on Google Maps.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, that's
1: (laughs) the
2: story of
0: Detroit, at least in our eyes. (laughs) It's an incredible city. And if you ever have the chance, you should visit. I want to go. I definitely want to go. If you're a fan of American cars, it's practically Mecca. When Eminem said, this is the Motor City and this is what we do, what was left then said is that what the city does has evolved radically in just a few short years. The new story of Detroit is about thriving, but it's also about resilience. It's not a story that can be told in a Super Bowl ad, but one that will reveal itself in the years and decades to come as the story of Detroit continues to be written.
2: Nice. 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 Nice.
0: Boom um looking at the comments for that super bowl ad that we launched the show with there's a lot of proud detroiters in there a lot of people that have a lot of fond memories of seeing this commercial because when it came on you know times are really tough and this was like a huge uh it was like a, a very motivational uh ad you know to see at the super bowl and like some guy was saying that he was working at the plant he was working at some plant and he was watching that before work to get hyped up for his shift. And it's like, damn, if that <laughs> hell yeah, if, dude! You know, something yeah. that we, you know, it's a little corny, but like, if that's if that's what it means for a city, well, you know, good for them. Yeah,
1: dude, I remember <laughs> watching that video in that Super Bowl. I was 2011. I was eight years old. <laughs> we were watching the Super Bowl, and then afterwards, we went to Polonia and got some dill pickle soup.
2: <laughs> nice. That's a great poll to end this Thanks, podcast man. on. That's what I feel like whenever whenever Nolan remembers stuff, it, it I feel like he's always six. Yeah, and I was like, damn, I was in college. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. I was eighteen. No, I was
0: about to turn eighteen when I saw that ad. I was Whoa. you know going to graduate high school that year. Eminem was like was- on a roll, by the way, in terms of like ads. You know, you had that one. Yeah, there was the Lipton one, which I don't remember. But also, he was like they used uh tilt. Uh, till I collapse, they use that in the Modern Warfare 2 trailer. Oh yeah. Oh. And that was like the sickest ad for a game that I've ever seen. Uh it still gets me hype.
1: Dude, I remember Modern Warfare. Me and my friends would just play it and we'd get Buddy's Detroit style pizza and yeah. sleepovers. <laughs> Where from? Where from? So, from Buddy's Pizza. From what's yeah.
2: your what's your
1: usual at Buddy's? Uh I get the Detroit style pizza.
2: <laughs> no de- toppings. <laughs> well, I get the Detroiter
0: with brick cheese. Oh, okay, cool. yeah, brick, brick cheese, cheese, huh?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah from I,
1: I like it because the spice blend is particularly gooey and delicious.
2: Wait, Ooh. spice is spice blend is gooey? <laughs> I'm only reading parts of <laughs> <laughs> Uh I before we head out, I just want to address something. Um, I think we talked a lot of smack about the Ford Edsel. In that podcast and i got an instagram message from this dude named trevor stoddard mm. uh, who is yeah. re, uh, fixing up an old edsel and oh, right. his pictures are super cool but he said that rearview mirrors were an option <laughs> that whoever <laughs> bought this car didn't have so i think that was pretty funny that's pretty cool. well, good. well yeah, thank you trevor I, I
1: also like how you started that with like listen i know we talked a lot of trash about this car, but <laughs> yeah. turns out some of them didn't even have <laughs> mirrors.
2: He looks cool though. It's like he's fixing it up. He's doing a great job, and so I just wanted to say not Ed, not every Ed's hole is a piece of crap.
1: And I think like yeah, just as a reminder like every car is cool, and uh, yeah. you know some cars are weird, and some cars are weirder than others. So
2: it's but still people just put by, millions of dollars yeah. and millions of hours into making that car so yeah, by, that's folks, cool by, by pointing out the quirks of a car yeah.
1: um we are by no means saying that it's it's, not it's cool. like
2: when we point out the quirks of nolan we still love him yeah but, you know and you're like we got to keep him in check or <laughs> else his ego is gonna get out of control yeah. or like well you guys according are to like, my astrology
0: like, it's that you know that's just not gonna happen my ego is in check <laughs> yeah. according to my star chart Thank you so much for listening to Past Gas. This is a kind of a different one than we do, usually do. You know, variety is the spice of podcasting. That's what my grandpa said. The gooey spice of podcasting. That's right? <laughs> variety it's is the gooey, the gooey spice, spice of podcasting. So, thank you very much. Um, Wait,
1: you know, if you're from Detroit, uh, we—I've been there. I love it there. So maybe. <laughs> After this is all over, we can all hook up, maybe get some better-made uh, potato <laughs> chips.
2: Uh, I didn't see that
1: one coming. Maybe go to Sister Pie, get a salted maple pie. I love those. Bucharest Wait, Grill. W- salted maple pie? That sounds yeah, delicious. That sounds, delicious. That yeah, sounds really it's, good, yeah, actually. Yeah, from Sister Pie. It's really good. You okay. love it. It's yeah, one of nice. my, sp- one of my spots.
0: If there's ever this a donut, run, if there's ever a gorgeous. donut tour if there's ever a donut tour Detroit is like a natural stop we have to go there Oh we for sure go. dude
1: because we got to get the breakfast poutine at the Brooklyn Street Local That's it right. will blow your freaking mind okay, dude
2: Okay okay I think okay this is this is my bucket list thing for Detroit uh-huh. if we ever go there yeah. we have to Go to that statue of the arm that's on the Yeah, uh, that
1: statue's cool.
2: And we have to pull it back and and have it punch Nolan. <laughs> yeah, punch him right
1: in the chest because he threw that water balloon at me super hard. And then after we do that, we'll just, you know, make up by going to Slow's barbecue and getting a garbage sandwich. What am I? This is one of my spots. It's a know, plan. Like, <laughs> it's a
0: plan. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this show. Uh be kind. I love you. And keep it juice. Alright, see you next time.